Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. We'll be reading this evening verses 22 and 23 of the book of Jude. This is also found in your order of worship and provided for you at home as well. Let's give ear now to the reading of the holy and inerrant and life-giving word of God. Jude, beginning in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you now with your word Before us, would you grant us the aid of your Holy Spirit that we might hear that which you would have us to hear? Would you build us up in our most holy faith even this evening and in the strength of the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. The 3,000-foot granite monolith in Yosemite National Park known as El Capitan is one of the most famous destinations for rock climbers and thus has also been the site of numerous rescue operations for injured, fallen, or stuck rock climbers. One such mission took place in 1972 when a climber was struck by a large boulder, smashing his leg, and then found himself stranded and badly injured about 900 feet below the summit. It took about 36 or more hours to orchestrate one of the most demanding rescues ever attempted. Even one of the complicating factors was a fire several weeks earlier in one of the supply buildings in the National Park, which destroyed all of the search and rescue materials. An area sailing company had provided a supply of rope, but it was rope not meant for jagged mountain rocks and edges. It was sailing line, but it was all they had to go with. Men were helicoptered to the top of the summit, and enough length of rope was knotted together to lower rescuers 900 feet down the face. And then while everyone held their breath over the next 90 minutes or so, the climber was precariously lowered the remaining 1,800 feet to safety. Search and rescue plans are often exercises in daring ingenuity, and they require courage and a lot of sacrifice. One of the more impressive things about folks who carry out search and rescue missions such as this is that the large majority of them are volunteers. They use their own vehicles and equipment. They volunteer their own time. They often leave their comfortable beds in the middle of the night when it's called for to rescue others who have found themselves in terrifying situations. Well, when you become a member of Christ's church, Jude would have you know that you have signed up to be a search and rescue volunteer of a different sort. Every Christian is called to be involved in seeking and helping restore weak and wayward Christians. And Jude, in these two verses before us this evening, gives us some instruction for what we might call a spiritual search and rescue mission, one which every Christian is duty-bound to be involved in and to engage in. I want to look at these instructions Jude gives us in three parts. And the first is his exhortation to us for dealing with those who doubt. 
These two verses form part of Jude's summary of what it meant for his readers to contend for the faith. In verses 20 and 21, which we looked at last Lord's Day morning, this call to contend for the faith was focused on the responsibility of the believers to their own spiritual growth and nourishment and perseverance. Now Jude turns their focus and attention outward to those among them who have succumbed, at least in part, to the dangerous influence that, influence that had infiltrated the church. And in this first bit of guidance, Jude says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Now, doubt is often a misunderstood condition when it comes to the Christian's personal experience or the experience we may become aware that others are going through. The idea of doubt, biblically speaking, is that of wavering between two mindsets. Os Guinness very helpfully explains, doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. To believe is to be in one mind about accepting something as true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. And to doubt is to waver somewhere in between the two and thus be in two minds. In fact, the very etymology of the word in the Greek language carries the idea of, of a sort of a double-mindedness, a disputing between two, two opposite things. And we want to be careful to not confuse doubt with something that's more grievous than doubt. Eric Alexander very helpfully makes this distinction for us. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Unbelief is an act of the will that refuses to trust and obey Christ. Doubt is often asking questions or voicing uncertainty, and it may well be from the standpoint of faith. And doubt which is smothered or ignored can often be the precursor of many problems in Christian experience. Doubt which is confessed and faced and fought through can be a growing thing in someone's Christian experience. It is not the same thing as unbelief or skepticism. Now, many, if not all Christians, go through at least seasons of some type of doubt, whether it be a struggle in their own faith or assurance or with parts of the Christian faith itself or the biblical worldview. The Bible gives us multiple examples of Christians and believers throughout history going through and struggling with this same sort of thing. You think of Asaph in Psalm 73 as he looks around at the success of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous and it causes him to waver in his confidence in the Lord. Think of John the Baptist in prison as he begins to waver even about his own conviction about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, we're told the disciples, in, in the presence of the, of the resurrected Lord, were told some doubted. Here were Jesus' first disciples who saw and heard unspeakable wonders, who, who ate with him on the seashore, and you were told they doubted. Thus, we ought not to be surprised by anyone who suffers from doubts in the Christian faith, especially in a culture such as ours in which our beliefs are assaulted intellectually, morally, socially, from every angle and at every hour. Jude, this, this half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself, who, who knew Jesus growing up and yet who did not believe in him until after the resurrection, Jude wants us to have mercy on those who doubt. Now, in one very real sense, the experience of doubt is, is, is natural as part of the lingering effects of the fall, not only in our hearts, 
but intellectually in our minds, the effect of the fall and the reality of remaining sin. It shows up in in this sort of weakness and wavering at times. John Calvin, speaking of the Christian's actual experience of faith in this life, writes this, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Now, often... Unfortunately, that sort of thing is harshly frowned upon in some circles. Uh, Christopher Green explains what that might look like. In some Christian settings, there is such a zeal for pure doctrine that it is very hard for people to admit that they have questions and misunderstandings. And it is difficult to find a friend who will sit and listen and talk things through. Is it possible that believers who struggle with that sort of a thing have found more welcome and friendship with unbelievers and thus end up with their doubts further strengthened. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. There are times when the genuine faith of genuine Christians can be shaken even to the core. And this is when gentleness is called for. This is when comfort is needed and strength needs to be given. David Helm advises us, don't be harsh. Don't think that behind every question, a budding heretic is getting ready to emerge. Be helpful. Invest in relationships. Be known for your patience and your love. Have mercy. That is how you contend for the faith. And particularly when we think about the harshness of Jude's language earlier in this letter against those who have infiltrated the church with a false gospel, and now to see the gentleness to which he calls us to have mercy on those who doubt. Don't condemn them. Don't rebuke them. Help them. C.S. Lewis paints a picture of our Lord's merciful handling of those who doubt in his Chronicles of Narnia in the book Prince Caspian, when, when Lucy sees Aslan and her siblings are reluctant to follow where she said he was leading them, and to varying degrees, those siblings doubted the truth of her experience. In particular, her older sister Susan was doubting this, but went along begrudgingly. And as Aslan eventually revealed himself to the doubting siblings, he turned to Susan and we read this, Then, after an awful pause, the deep voice said, Susan. Susan made no answer, but the others thought she was crying. You have listened to fears, child, said Aslan. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? And correcting her gently, Aslan healed her doubts. Have mercy on those who doubt. This is the same model our Lord Jesus displayed for us on several occasions. You think of how Jesus treated Uh, doubting disciples in their moments of their greatest weakness, particularly the case of Thomas, who has even earned the nickname based on such a condition. J.C. Ryle comments, It is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas, but it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He deals with them according to his weakness, like a gentle nurse dealing with a froward child. Now, to be clear, Jude is not saying that doubt is a positive feature of the Christian experience. He's not celebrating doubt as a virtue. I think 
in an unfortunate overreaction to Christians and churches who may be unnecessarily harsh toward those who doubt, that the overreaction becomes a celebration of doubt as a virtue. We don't ever want to be a church that treats those who struggle with doubts as outcasts. And we don't want to be a church that celebrates doubt as some kind of a Christian virtue. We want to be a church that encourages those who struggle with doubts to be honest about them so that those doubts can be addressed and dealt with and helped, so that faith can grow and struggling believers can become strong believers as a result of having those doubts answered and dealt with. That is what is behind Jude's prescription. This is the means by which wavering and doubting believers are meant to overcome their doubting by being strengthened by those who are stronger in their faith. This, this means, for one, we ought to all be growing into Christians who are capable of walking others through such struggles in their faith. Michael Green writes this, a loving approach, a sense of the right occasion, and a carefully thought-out Christian position. These are the qualities required by this first clause. We are those who have received mercy and wait for the full revealing of that mercy, and we ought to show mercy that comforts and builds up and restores those who are weak, that they might be built up in their most holy faith. That brings us to the second category of Jude's call for us to engage in this search and rescue mission, and that is snatching others from the fire. The second piece of this portion of contending for the faith is found in the first half of verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, this seems to be a category of those in the church who are much further gone down the road than merely doubting. These are not merely wavering between the two positions of belief and unbelief. They've succumbed in Jude's setting to the influence of the false teachers so much so that they're now in the category on the other side, that of unbelief. They've succumbed to the, to the immorality that is granted license by the false teacher's lawless perversion of grace, and they're now ensnared so much by it that for all appearances they've given evidence that they may never have been true believers at all. And Jude says we are to save others. This is redemptive language that Jude is using here. This is a redemptive act he is calling us to be engaged in toward those who are in imminent danger of judgment. Of course, we know that God is the one who saves. What Jude is saying, as Calvin so helpfully puts it, not that we are the authors of salvation, but the ministers of salvation. So every strong Christian in the church is called to be a minister of salvation in our attempts, our desperate attempts to rescue others. And Jude's language makes it clear that the, the danger they are in is imminent danger. And it is rescue that is the aim that this sort of language conveys. Jude's own brother, James, writes this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. Jude says we save them by snatching them out of the fire. And the idea here is that they are not yet in the fires of eternal judgment, but they are teetering on the brink 
and the edge of final judgment and everlasting destruction. Jude does not view the coming judgment as some some distant event on the far-off horizon and thus essentially irrelevant. He views it as something coming quickly, and thus they are in danger of meeting such a dreadful fate completely unprepared. He says we're to save them by snatching them. That language conveys a sense of desperate urgency. There's a a suddenness and a speed that's conveyed by such talk. Uh, The word is used in other places as, as taking something by force. Something needs to be done quickly. Rescuers getting an emergency call, they certainly put thought into their plans, but they don't unnecessarily hesitate to grow into action. Gene Green comments, as the church is responsible to build itself up on the foundation of faith, in verse 20, so also rapid and drastic measures must be taken to rescue those who have become wayward. Errant members are not to be simply dismissed, but also sought out and delivered from the error into which they have fallen. It is an urgent search and rescue operation when it comes to those who have left the faith. Thought and prayer must be given as to what kind of action we must take. But the question is not whether or not action must be taken, but what kind and how quickly. Sometimes we don't know what to say, but we need to say something. Because when we know someone is in danger, it is part and parcel of the duty of being a Christian to reach out in an attempt to restore them. You think about what's required to, to rescue someone 900 feet down a sheer granite cliff. There's a fearlessness and a, and a courage that's required. How much more so for one teetering on the brink of an eternity too horrific to contemplate, wholly unprepared. This is an effort driven sheerly by love, desperate to see someone avoid an eternal fate we don't want to think about. The language of Jude, though, helps us to realize that hope is not lost. As long as they're still alive, there is hope. It is still quite possible for people in genuine spiritual peril to be saved by snatching them out of the fire. We see this because uh, of the language Jude is using that comes to us from the Old Testament. Amos chapter 4, verse 11, uses language like this, referring to Israel. You were as a brand plucked out of the burning. More more likely, I believe Jude is alluding to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 3, verse 2. He's already alluded to Zechariah earlier in this book, where the Lord, referring to Joshua the high priest, says, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire. In other words, there's hope in Jude's language here. The implication that one can be snatched from the fire, that the Lord does save, and he does use our feeble efforts to rescue. David Helm talks about how these very words of Jude were some of his only comfort in the midst of trying to desperately reach a wayward man, desperately set on his sinful lifestyle. He writes this, Somehow these words reassured me that God does still save wayward sinners and that my counsel might bear fruit in my friend's life. I held on to them for his dear life, and I would run my fingers over them, praying that he might be counted among those others. Restorative evangelism is the work of contending. We must give ourselves to the immense privilege of saving people for God. 
And it requires saying difficult things. It's navigating a, a conversation that could be extremely uncomfortable, but it is mercy and kindness that drives this. More than 20 years ago now, I, during a period of my own life, when I found myself having wandered very far away from the Christian life I once knew, an old friend had the courage to call me up one day and ask me how I was doing, even though he knew good and well that I was not doing well. He had the courage and the compassion to call me up and ask. And at a certain point in the conversation, he began to weep. And through sobs, he told me that if I didn't repent, he was scared for where I would end up. And I was cool and fairly calm in the conversation. I thanked him for his time. I closed the conversation and hung up. But that phone call stuck with me. His courage and his emotion, his love for me was unforgettable. It haunted me. That phone call was one of the things that the Lord used to nag at me. It was the love of a Christian friend who did not want to see someone he loved suffer eternal destruction, save some by snatching them out of the fire. Well, Jude concludes his summary of contending for the faith by our efforts to restore others with a third directive, and this comes at the end of verse 23, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This may not be another group of individuals he's advising us on how to deal with them, Some commentators actually see this as another group of individuals within the church, but that's not entirely clear from the text. Mercy is qualified here by fear, and the very next part of Jude's phrase helps us determine what he means. He says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The word he uses here for garment refers to that item of clothing Uh, that is worn closest to the skin of the body, and thus the garment that becomes the most easily polluted. And you add to that picture the fact that Jude is using the word flesh here, not in the general sense of a human body, but in the common New Testament way of referring to the sinful nature and its impulses and desires. And so then you thus have the idea that there is a genuine reality and danger of the pollution that sin brings with it, particularly the sins of immorality in Jude's case, the danger that this presents both to the one ensnared in sin and to the one seeking to restore them. Peter Davids explains, in showing mercy to those who are sinning, it is quite possible to get drawn into their sin. Sin is deceitful enough that those trying to help others could themselves get trapped. Lifeguards know that they need to be careful that the person they seek to save from drowning doesn't in their flailing somehow grab a hold of them and drown them as well. Firefighters working in the midst of extreme danger and fire have extreme preparation and caution uh, that they need to go through. And, and so Jude isn't necessarily concerned with a particular extent of the waywardness here of those we seek to restore as he is in how we engage with the wayward. David Helm explains that this verse is more of a warning of sorts to those of us engaged in the work of mercy. None of us is immune to falling into temptation. In the blink of an eye, an act of mercy or or a reach to save puts us not only in touch with evil, but also in the, the presence and fullness of fallen desires. 
So be careful. Show mercy, but do so in the fear of God. Don't grow to secretly love for yourself what mercy is trying to put away in the life of another. Thus, we have something like what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There is a call here for for a measure of spiritual maturity and and a watchfulness, even among those who are spiritually mature, of those things that carry the potential to attempt the, the flesh and the remaining sin that we all still carry. So Jude would have us recognize the danger and then operate accordingly. Beware of, of an undue curiosity or fascination with the sins that others have fallen into. And, and in our ministry to others, and whatever that may look like, we ought to never make light of sin. We ought to talk about it for what it is. And it's mercy to do so. And that's one of the implications of Jude's warning and his guidance here. He's exposing the genuine nature of sin for us all, particularly for those who are dabbling in it or those who are near it. Mercy cannot mean condoning or even giving some sort of tacit acceptance of sin. This is a prescription for loving with honesty. You are playing with fire is the message. It's a reminder for us of the reality of our own remaining sin and the need to guard ourselves from temptation to that which may ensnare us. But it's also a motivator for us to show mercy because we know how easy it is for someone to become engulfed in the inferno of sin. And and what a terrible estate those who are in, who are engulfed in sin, hating Even the garment stained by the flesh, Jude says. Sin is an awful thing. It is a destroyer. It devours people. It devours families. It devours churches. And we must beware. And so our mercy is shown in how we desperately desire those involved in sin to be rescued. And and in how desperately we, we warn others about sin and how we personally avoid then falling into it. What a heightened an urgent sense then of the need for mercy. The, the ones who we seek to restore are ensnared in things we would not desire anyone to be ensnared in, and thus a desperate need for mercy is here. And Jude doesn't exactly prescribe for us what this mercy might look like in action. There are other places in the scripture that give us guidance in this sort of thing, but Jude doesn't describe that here. Uh, opportunities and circumstances can vary In fact, sometimes there isn't very much at all in the way of active involvement that's even available to us in our efforts to rescue others. Sometimes the person won't even allow us to broach the subject. Perhaps there are times when that mercy can only be expressed through fervent prayer. You think of the the relentless prayer of Monica, the mother of the man who would become known to us as St. Augustine who never ceased to offer her prayers to God to rescue her wayward and immoral son. Augustine, after his conversion, would describe those tearful and fervent prayers of his mother as rivers she addressed to God daily for my sake, irrigating the ground under her face. In his famous confessions, Augustine confessed in prayer to God why he wrote so much about 
his mother and her life and prayers. It was all so that all of them who read my account remember your servant, Monica. Showing mercy with fear at the very, very least means we don't ever stop praying. It's not just for our own children. We, we, we've taken covenant vows uh, to look out for the well-being of every single church member, every covenant child. We, we, need to, we need to be aware of the pain others are suffering as they grieve over and pray for wayward ones that they know. We need to join them in this. We need to make sure they know we join them in this. We need to make efforts when we can, when opportunity arises, to reach out in mercy with fear to wayward ones who have gone out from us. Show mercy with fear, knowing that God is still able and willing to save. Well, when any search and rescue plan is attempted, there is a great deal of uncertainty. And in our efforts to restore and evangelize, we don't know what the results will be. But we can and we ought to confidently engage in the mission given to us because Jesus is the good shepherd who ultimately will not allow any of his sheep to perish. He said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is Jesus to whom we point, weak and wayward believers. As those who have received his mercy, we in that mercy point others to the same mercy in hopes that they would grasp it. Uh, Another glimpse into the sovereign mercy of Jesus to which Jude would have us point to in our efforts is is found in the same Old Testament passage he's already alluded to, and there's another picture there that Jude means for us to notice. Not only was was Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 a brand plucked from the fire, but he was also pictured as one standing before the Lord with polluted garments. In Zechariah's vision, we read this. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That is the glorious comfort that is true of every believer. Every one of us is a brand plucked from the fire by the sovereign mercy of God. Every one of us all were decked in garments stained and filthy, but in his sovereign mercy, the Lord has removed and replaced them with pure vestments. We have been washed in his blood, and our filthy rags have been replaced with the perfectly pure righteousness of the sinless Savior. If you're an unbeliever or someone who no longer believes, one who has wandered into the far country. What does it mean to be snatched from the fire? It's not to somehow remodel or reestablish some righteous standard of living and thus become acceptable to, to a church or, more importantly, to the Lord. It means to turn back, trusting in the mercy of the Lord Jesus who will wash away every sin, every polluted garment, even the filthiest of the garments, And even of the most reprobate sinner, no one is so filthy that the Lord Jesus cannot make clean and restore to them new life. That is what is being offered to you even now in this moment. It is what every true believer knows to be true of themselves, the full and complete forgiveness of all of my filthiness, a change of clothing for one who was polluted, 
a robe of righteousness in the place of my filthy rags. Revelation 7.14 describes the, the saints in glory in this way. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And thus every believer will stand rejoicing forever before the Lord in those words of the hymn writer, their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Amen. Our Father, would you grant your blessing to the ministry of your word this very night, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.